0: All right, are you guys excited to jump into the book of Nehemiah? Yeah. Do you know about this book? Yeah. No? Is, that, is, that, is it the same thing as Jeremiah? Kind of. They're contemporaries. Um, Nehemiah is one of the books in the Old Testament. Um, Nehemiah was one of the exiles so when the kingdom of Israel was conquered, uh, all of the Jews or most of the Jews were, were exiled. They were shipped off to live in different parts of, of the Babylonian empire. Nehemiah was one of those Jewish people, and uh, you get little glimpses of his life as um, a person living in exile in a far-off country that's not his own, um, and it's, it's like reading the book of Nehemiah is like reading through someone's journal. Um, that's what it's like. There's, there's, there's dates, there's journal entries, there's prayers. Some of it's super personal. Uh, large portions of it is rather mundane. Um, but it's, it's like a journal, really, that we're reading. Um, but more than that, this, um, when Jesus referenced the Old Testament or Torah, what we call the Old Testament, he wasn't, he, just, he did not reference the text as just a bit of history, some arbitrary details about things that happened once upon a time. He, when he spoke of the Old Testament, he did so as if they were words pinned under the inspiration of God himself. Words that the Holy Spirit breathed, that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God inspired. So what we're about to read isn't just some ancient journal that we happen to have on record. This is, this is God's word. These are words that God himself inspired and it just so happens that they have to do with this man named Nehemiah and his life experience. So that's what we're doing, you guys ready? So we jump into it. If you have a Bible, this would be a great time to grab it, open it. Good luck trying to find Nehemiah. Probably haven't been there in a while, if I had to guess. I've got mine marked. (laughs) Um, But don't be too embarrassed. It's on the screen behind me, as always, if you can't find it. Here we go. We're going to read the entire first chapter. It's about 11 verses, 11 verses. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive, and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power, by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was a cupbearer to the king. This man that Nehemiah is referring to is... Um, Artaxerxes, the king of the Persian Empire, which we'll find out soon enough. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for these words, this uh, journal, as it were, that you have preserved for our benefit. Lord, I pray that you would help us. Holy Spirit, would you be our teacher and uh, open our hearts and our minds to receive um, whatever it is you want to say to us today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin with context. Uh, It's important, particularly when we're delving into some of the more obscure parts of the Old Testament that we orient ourselves in the story Um, because there is an epic story that's unfolding all throughout the Bible. We need to figure out where are we at in the story. So these words, this journal entry, as it were, Would have been pinned around 444, 445 BC. So over 400 years before the coming of Christ. About 500 years prior to that point, the temple in Jerusalem was dedicated by King Solomon. Almost 500 years prior to this point in time, the great Temple of God's people was erected and dedicated for the worship of Yahweh. Kind of a big deal, kind of a marker in the story of God's people. It would have been the thing that, that all of the Jewish kids would have grown up hearing about, making pilgrimages to understanding the significance of and this great temple had been built at that point in time. It only lasted for. Less than 400 years, about 360 years would have gone by before the Babylonians invaded the southern kingdom of Israel, sieged Jerusalem, and eventually raised the temple to the ground, burned it to the ground. Um, About another 50 years would go by, and of course, the Jews would have been exiled to Babylon. Some of them would have escaped and remained. Some of them would have been made to remain just to sort of tend to the land and, and uh, maintain the city as it were as the Babylonians set up shop. Fifty years go by and the Persians take over. They conquer the Babylonians and King Cyrus makes the decree that the Jews should all go home. He wants them to resettle Jerusalem. And he even decrees that the temple itself is to be rebuilt. And that temple became known as the second temple in Jerusalem. It's said that when that temple was, uh, when the construction of that temple began, there were many who rejoiced and there were others who uh, lamented because they remembered the glory of the former temple. Nevertheless, Cyrus, the king of Persia, had it in his mind to rebuild Jerusalem, or at least the temple anyway. It took about 20 years for that, the construction of that temple to be rebuilt, which means there was exactly 70 years between the destruction of the first temple and the completion of the construction of the second temple and that's important because the prophet Jeremiah actually foretold specifically that there would be 70 years between the two temples another 70 years go by there some Jews living in Jerusalem the second temple had been built and dedicated Seventy years go by, and Nehemiah, who's now been living in Babylon for probably his entire life, or most of it anyways, who's now serving as one of the official royal uh, servants, he's the cupbearer of Artaxerxes. He gets constant FaceTime with the emperor of the Persian empire. He wants to know how things are going in Jerusalem. Now that the temple has been rebuilt and 70 years gone by, what's the status? What's going on? Is it going well? Is the city looking good again? Is, are we thriving under this new decree? And of course he gets word, as we just read, that it's not going well at all. The walls have not been rebuilt. The city is still in shambles. And even though the temple has been re-erected, Everything's going poorly. He's devastated. Nehemiah, this, not the man, but this book that we're going to work our way through for the next three months. It's the tale of a man processing the pain of unmet expectations. That's that's where we start. And that's, why I felt it necessary for the ancient history lesson as well. Because what we're reading here, isn't just the fact that that something bad has happened, and now this man, Nehemiah, who loves his country and his kinsmen and is sort of processing the pain of devastation. No, it's not just that. What's actually happened is that 70 years have gone by since the decree that Jerusalem is to be rebuilt and the second temple has been erected. Now, 70 years later, he's waiting for the good report. He's waiting to find out, how is it going? Is it as good as I'm hoping for? Is it everything that that I've been dreaming of? And he gets the report, and he's told that, no, in fact, everything's terrible. This is a story of a man processing the pain of unmet expectations he had every reason to believe that man by now surely by now 70 years later jerusalem's back on the map things are going well i have i have hope i had hope i was hoping that things would be back to normal at least does this not just make you reflect a little bit on your own life Have you had any unmet expectations lately? Have you been there lately? Have you made that journal entry lately? Hmm. There's difficult things that happen in life, but then there's things that happen that you were led to believe would be great and then are snatched away from you. I. Uh, Two or three months ago, I was checking my bank account. You guys are going to love this. As you do, Monday morning, see how it's going. $30,000 had appeared like that in my account. I was like, heck yes. (laughs) I mean, you want to talk about like joy from heaven. I was like, oh yeah. Like, I'm feeling it. God loves me today. Woo! 30 grand. I mean, can you feel me? Could you imagine? Put yourself there. 30 right there in my account. Right there. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Oh, my god. I, like, checked it. I'm like, hold on. Let me get my glasses on. Like, I'm, I'm obviously seeing double zeros. $30,000 000 in my account. So I call um, the... the the ministry office, so Shirley and I, we have a a handful of people who support us financially as church planters, essentially. Um, And uh, people like my parents and and others who supported me even as like a campus missionary, just continued to sow into our ministry and and our church. So I called the the ministry office to say, hey, um, just wanted to check on this 30 grand that's appeared is this for real? And you know where I'm going with this. They checked and they're like, "Oh, so sorry. Thank you for catching our air. I'm like, "Dang it. Dang it." <laughs> like I could have just let it go and then, you know, and let God's will be done, right? <laughs> so there I go. <laughs> Thank you so much for catching our error. We will we will adjust that immediately like oh my goodness like I was actually having a decent Monday morning (laughs) but but to to go from like I have this unreal sort of promise that's been like put in front of me like God God loves you he's got a good plan for your life and hey here's 30 grand just because you're my kid (laughs) to all of a sudden take it away Now that's kind of a silly example of an unmet expectation, a promise that's set right before you only to be ripped away. But there's other things I think that are probably a bit more serious that we can reflect on as we consider, well in particular this past year of life, certain things we expected to go a particular way I think a lot about my relationships. I was telling someone recently that I was looking at an old picture of our church and I was sort of reminiscing and then looking at all the faces like, man, where are all these people? Ooh, that stings a little bit because that relationship is still sort of on the rocks and I really wanna fix it, but I don't know how. And it felt like there was so much hope so much excitement, so many expectations. Good, reasonable, godly expectations. And it didn't work out. What do you do with that? Now Shirley and I, um, someone was just asking me earlier this morning, how's your marriage? It's a great question. And I said, honestly? (laughs) Shh, quiet. (laughs) Well, it was going well. (laughs) Now, I said, honestly, I think our marriage is the best that it's ever been. Wait for it. (laughs) We've had to work really, really hard. Like, the first several years was like, oh, my goodness. Lord, like, why are you punishing us? (laughs) Like, what what did we do? What did we do to deserve each other? Like... And of course, it's not what you expect. Not going into marriage, not going into any relationship, for that matter. You, it's in the early days. You have nothing but excitement and 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 hope and anticipation for this is going to be wonderful. And then things perhaps don't work out exactly the way you had hoped. And now, all of a sudden, you're like, this isn't. This is not my expectation at all. In fact, sometimes I wonder if I wouldn't have been just happier alone. glad we're still together. Marriage is really good right now. Uh, Many people that I talk to, and I'll include myself at some level, were processing through unmet expectations regarding uh, faith, regarding the church. Popular term is deconstruction, which is not like a new thing at all, but it's the thing that's being talked about quite a bit at the moment. People sort of reconsidering, like, well, how, what do I really think about the church, about Christianity, about Jesus, about the Bible? Certain things have transpired that have caused me to step back because I had certain expectations. I thought it was going to feel or look or play out a particular way, and it's, that's not happened at all, and now I'm beginning to feel disillusioned. Now I feel hurt. I feel frustrated. And I'm beginning to reevaluate everything and and I I have certain expectations that were absolutely not met. And what do you do with that? How do you process through those emotions without simply deconstructing into oblivion? I know a lot of people who are working through the emotions of that right now. Unmet expectations in your work and your job was, like, you were so excited about it at one point in time. And then you don't know what happened. God only knows what happened, but now you hate it, and you're conspiring how to get out. You thought this church was going to be, like, the best thing ever, and now you're wondering, when, when will be my last Sunday? I've been contemplating it for a while. I'm just trying to figure out, like, a way I can justify it spiritually. And you know, you know. Unmet expectations, if not processed well, can really shipwreck your life. So that's our starting point. Nehemiah responds in a way that I think is absolutely phenomenal. There's some things here that I think if we can glean, we might be able to process through the reality of unmet expectations. Nehemiah is not a book on how to avoid unmet expectations. Unmet expectations is a fact of life. You try to avoid it, but it's a fact of life. Things don't go according to your plan all the time. And Nehemiah responds, not only in chapter 1, but as we will find out as we read on, in a way that I think is absolutely um, instructive, it's helpful, inspires hope, and it actually points us back to Jesus three things number one the first thing that nehemiah does when he is confronted with the incredible pain of his unmet expectations is mourn he mourns it says that he sat down started to cry and mourned for days this was really important You're processing through the unmet expectations in your life now. And perhaps those were unmet expectations, pain that began a long time ago. Sometimes these things take a while to catch up. But as you're confronted with the pain of your own disillusionment, the first thing we must do is to mourn. Honestly embrace the reality that you have been let down. Now, to be sure, your expectations may have been completely unrealistic. That's a thing. That's a problem. Or perhaps they weren't. Perhaps you were led to believe that Jerusalem should have been banging by now. Like you had no reason to to not believe that the temple's done, Cyrus is on our side, like we should be back in action. I was expecting that my marriage was going to be great. I mean, we both loved Jesus, He was there when we exchanged vows. I thought that job was actually an answer to prayer, and now I hate it. But my expectations were actually perfectly reasonable. And now everything sucks. Embrace it. Admit it. Sit in it. Feel it. You've been let down. You've been let down. You were led to believe that it was going to be great. It was going to be something incredible, better than what you could perhaps even dream up or imagine. And now it just, it feels like the worst thing that could have happened in your life. You had 30 grand for like 20 minutes. Now you got nothing. You got your $200 back in your account. Actually, we have more than that. God is good. It's so important that when we are, Experiencing disillusionment when reflecting on our life and realizing things have not worked out. It's not what I thought it was going to be. That person is not who I was expecting them to be or become. And now I'm hurting. I feel let down. When was the last time you cried because you got let down? I I believe. I'm speaking very, very broadly now. This is a generalization. But I think it's fair. I believe that as a society, we have forgotten how to mourn. It's like we've lost our liturgy. We've lost the the ways, the traditions, the things that we do on a societal scale to mourn pain in our lives. What we've gotten really good at is ways to avoid mourning, We have a million and one different ways to escape the painful process of mourning our unmet expectations. We escape. We numb. We rail. We do anything or everything to avoid just sitting in the pain. We hide. We cover up. We justify. We blame shift. We tweet, we'll do anything other than just simply say I'm hurting and I'm just going to sit in it and fully feel that pain weep that's the first thing he did you know the Bible, I actually preached a message on lament about uh, six months ago, it was towards the end of 2020 talked about lamentation, the Bible is brilliant all throughout scripture you see examples of people like nehemiah and others jeremiah um, is probably the best example who wrote lamentations he were given scripture we're given text we're given examples we're given poetry we're given liturgy to help us process pain to lament in a way that's healthy that in a way almost forces us to deal head on with the shame that we're wrestling with with the disillusionment that's beginning to take over. One of my favorite psalms, I want to share this with you guys, because I think it's a fantastic example of what lament looks like in the Bible. Morning. mourning. This is Psalm 55. Let me read this to you guys. It actually starts out a little bit like Nehemiah's prayer. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan. Because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they drop trouble on me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me, fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelm me, and I say, Oh, I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. That is an honest lament. God, if I could, I would just run. I would avoid. I would, I would do anything possible. I'd go live in the desert. Anything just to avoid this pain. My heart is in anguish within me. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. Get this. Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. I see violence and strife and garbage and homelessness and hate and suffering and loneliness and suicide and depression. I see it in the city. It's rife. I hate it. Day and night they go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Listen, then I could bear it. If it was who I expected to betray me, I could deal with that. I expect my enemy to let me down. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. Let death steal over them. Let them go to hell alive. It says, let them go down to Sheol alive for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. He's talking about the betrayal of a friend. And he is so honest. That's mourning. We can find ways to escape. Here's what I do, because I know better, because I've read the Bible. I know how to dress it up. I'll convince myself that I'm good. Ah, wasn't a big deal. 30 grand, I don't get 30 grand. Didn't really care, anyways. I wasn't really expecting that much out of the relationship. You know, I came to be a part of this church, and yeah, I'd been let down in the past, so I wasn't really expecting it to be different this time. Really? Huh, that's convenient. You sure it doesn't sting just a little bit? Nah, I'm good. It's no big deal. I'm good. I'm mature. I'm strong. I don't feel pain. (coughs) Sorry, got something in my eye. (laughs) That's what I do. I've learned how to not cry. I've conditioned myself to believe I don't care. Instead of mourning. Instead of embracing the fact that, man, I'm hurting. I've been let down by a friend. I've been betrayed by those who I rightly trusted. I have unmet expectations, and it hurts. I feel disillusioned. I want to leave. I want to run. I want to hide. I want to lie to myself. I want to do anything I can to avoid feeling this. I don't know what to say other than, my friends, whatever you're dealing with right now, I'm begging you, don't run and don't try to convince yourself that you're bigger, tougher than you really are. Sit in the pain. If you're disillusioned, say it. If that friend who you once loved, you now want to look them in the eye and say, you go to hell. Deal with it. Sit in that pain. Nehemiah doesn't stop there. He says, I mourned for days while I continue to pray and fast. Now this is, this is, where, this is where hope comes into the picture. A lot of us this past season have experienced a lot of pain, a lot of disappointments, a lot of unmet expectations, and perhaps you are grappling with, with the reality of that pain and you're beginning to mourn, in, at least in some fashion. But one thing I've noticed in my own life is that when I am hurting, that tends to be this sort of internal cue to begin to step back from God. I'll think about God, I'll talk about God, I'll talk with other people about God, but I'll start talking to God. I'll stop spilling my guts to Jesus. I don't know why exactly. I know that it's part of human nature. I know that if you go back to Genesis 3 and you read the, the the account of the man and the woman who rebelled, who chose to trust themselves over their God, what happens immediately is that they run and hide. They run and they hide, they cover up, they withdraw. And one can only imagine, like, well, why is that? Why do we do that? Why is it when my kid gets in trouble, their natural inclination is to go and run and hide, to isolate, to be alone? Why is that? Why do we do that? It's almost like a wounded animal that knows it's hurt, and it goes someplace off by itself under a bush to die. And there's something very primal and broken about us that we tend to withdraw when we're hurting. I reckon we're not all like that. I don't, I don't know you. I don't know how you are. I don't know how you process pain all the time. But it seems to be a human phenomenon. And I think about the number of times that I've moaned and I've outraged and I've talked about my pain. But when I think about how, how often I actually take my pain to Jesus, like the, the, it's completely disproportional. Disproportionate. This past year, I prayed more than ever because I was determined to be like, you know, I'm not going to just mourn. I'm not going to just sit in my pain unless I know Jesus is there with me. And so I'm going to pray. I'm going to talk to Jesus about my pain. Guys, this is, this is the, 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 the utterly wonderful and frustrating simplicity of the gospel. We like to, to complicate it. We like to think about it. We like to, to get all intellectual with it. And we... So often, I don't know why I do this, but I forget that actually all I need to do, really it's this simple. I know some of you are gonna hate this, but all I really need to do is go sit and be with Jesus. Be still and trust that he's capable, that he's good, that he's faithful, that in his presence there's freedom. He has the answer. I don't have to wrestle the wisdom out of his hands I don't have to, to find the secret knowledge that he's hiding from me so that I can break it all down and, and reframe it in some enlightened manner. No, I just need to connect with my God and say, I'm hurting. This person let me down. I was expecting one thing and it's like they took it out of my hand, spit on it, and threw it back in my face. I wish they would just, mmm, it hurts. It hurts so bad. You know what my prayer has been? Over and over and over this past 20 years. God help my heart to stay soft. After I'm done mourning, I want to get up from this place and have a heart that's still soft. Only Jesus can do that. I'm convinced. You may you might have another source. Talk to me. If you got something better than Jesus, I wanna know about it. I've I've searched far and wide. So feel your pain. Be honest about what's really going on. But talk to God. Talk to him. You say, I don't know what to say. What what, what do I say? How does it work? Do I do it with people? Do I do it alone? Do I have have to use like certain words? I feel super awkward about praying. I don't pray out loud and I'm I'm embarrassed to admit it. Like these sort of things. I've heard, we all, you know what I'm talking about. I'm convinced you all know what I'm talking about (laughs) because we all do it. And at some point you just have to say, you know what, forget it. I don't care about any of that. Jesus, help, help. I can't do this. I don't want to try and figure it out. I want you to touch me. I want you to heal me. I want you to make my heart soft again so that I don't get up hard, bitter, resentful. I don't want to just leave. Lord Jesus, help give me strength. Now, what happens next? This, okay, this is something else. This might actually offend a few of you. You ready? This is so counterintuitive. What happens next? He mourns. He mourns while talking to God. And then he takes responsibility. He takes responsibility. He begins to repent on behalf of his nation and even his own household. He says, we sinned against you even my father's house and I we have sinned against you notice that nowhere in this prayer and by the way this is uh, there's 11 prayers in the book of Nehemiah and we're going to we're going to slow down for each one but in this first prayer notice that at no point does he start railing against the persians who is to blame for this mess that we're in, for this unmet expectation, for for my kinsmen and family members who are living on the streets in the once glorious city of Jerusalem. Who's to blame? The stinking Persians. They're the ones that, well, Babylon, I don't know, how far do you want to go back? They conquered us. They stole us out of our land. The Persians came along. They kind of brought us back, but only to use us and to enslave us once again in our own space. He would have been so justified to rail against the oppressor. But he doesn't do that. This is the offensive part. This almost gets like a little political, does it not? What's our attitude? What's our perspective when we're dealing with the pain and the disillusionment, the the unmet expectations in our lives? What's our posture? Who do we blame? In the garden... Oh, this is great. God comes to the man and the woman. He asks them three questions. They're hiding. They're riddled with shame. And he says, where are you? Who told you you were naked? And what have you done? Did you eat? Did you eat the fruit I told you not to eat? The one thing I told you not to do? And he's giving them the opportunity to take responsibility, to confess and what did, he, what did he do? What did the man do, Adam, in the garden? He does what my kids do every single time. I, I promise you without fail, I go into the living room and there's like literally trash on the floor, like trash. And I said, hey, who had the string cheese and threw their wrapper on the ground? I didn't, me neither, not me. I have three kids every single stinking time. And so I'm teaching my kids how to take responsibility. God teaches his kids how to take responsibility. Was Israel conquered? Of course they were. Was it tragic? Absolutely. And later on, Nehemiah, he talks very plainly about it. There's no disillusionment in, in the, this, this journal. But instead of railing against his oppressors, he begins to confess his sin. He begins to own his junk. He begins to take responsibility. What am I gonna do you know, in my marriage? here's a little marriage tip for you. Sorry if you're single. I I often get feedback from single people who say, why do you always talk about marriage? I I get it. I I was 32 when I met my wife, not that long ago. So, but some of these like marriage things, guys, I'm so sorry if you're single and this is like salt in the wound, but this could be super helpful, okay? In marriage, Shirley and I we, we would go at it, and we like, were struggling to figure it out. like How do we get along? How do we love each other? How do we like each other? And inevitably, like, we would argue about something. And the overwhelming temptation is to sit there and obsess over what this wonderful person that God has blessed me with has done to ruin my life. Like, and it's very obvious it's her fault. And, of course, she's thinking the exact same thing. And guess what? It do- doesn't work out. Like for some crazy reason, we just go round and round and round, and eventually we had the brilliant idea of like we should we should like read a book or go see a marriage counselor or something. This is relationship 101. If it's breaking down, step number one. Well, step number one. Actually, this is this is actually just like counseling 101. Sit in your pain. Feel your feelings. Own it. Don't run away. Don't try to expedite the process. Sit in your pain. Talk to God. Talk to him some more. Keep talking to him. Talk to him again. Tell him how you, re- no, tell him how you really feel. And then keep talking. God's a really good listener. It's like free therapy. A little, little pro tip. And then take responsibility. Take responsibility. Don't shift the blame, don't point at Eve, don't blame your sister, or your brother, or your spouse, or your boss, or the government, or this person, or that person, or the other. We need to talk about all those things and address issues of injustice, please hear me right. But if we want to overcome the pain of unmet expectations, we've got to look in the mirror and say, right, what am I going to do to fix this? What am I going to do to, to overcome this predicament, this situation, this where I'm at? How will I take responsibility? How will I make it better? How can I change? How can I own my sin? How can I confess? How can I take ownership? By the way, this is leadership. Leadership. If you want to mature in your faith and be a leader in your respective area of influence, this is it. It's as simple as this. Leaders take responsibility. Good parents take responsibility. Good bosses, good pastors, good friends, people take responsibility. When you show up in a place and you see garbage everywhere, pick it up. You guys remember the van out there, all the garbage? Who do you reckon picked it up? Where's Brother Noah? Yeah, there was a couple people in this room that picked it up. That's leadership. That's taking responsibility. Can we stand together, please? Now, I hope I, you know, I get a little worked up and I hope that um, you didn't feel like I just told you off. But I wanted to, I wanted to challenge us because I realized this is a challenge. I was, um, I wanted to share this story with you, and then we're gonna we're gonna end in a time of worship. Um, just recently, it was like what three or four days ago. I was, well, I won't go into the details, but I was around the corner from a couple of guys who were talking and they were, um, they're basically like kind of laughing, this and that, and saying some super, super racist things. And I'm like, it, it kind of shocked me. I was like, oh, like I'm, I'm hearing this right now. I, I should not be hearing this. Like they obviously don't know that I'm literally standing around the corner. And it was there was racist remarks that I personally, like, Took, took offense at and um, I was just sort of like froze like I didn't know what to do and then I thought well I should I should call someone I should call their boss I should call the police I should I should call someone because clearly someone needs to like do something about this this is this is wrong this is wrong someone needs to address this and I was scared It didn't even enter my mind that I should walk around the corner and take responsibility for the situation. So I did. I was terrified. I had a box cutter in my back pocket. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Could you imagine? I did not. I did not. But I went around the corner. One of the guys was obviously sort of the, the shot caller. And I said, hey, can I, can I talk to you in private quickly? And I confronted him. I was scared to death. So outside of my temperament. Taking responsibility. Now I say that, I guess I'm bragging a little bit, but it's more of like, guys, I just get how hard this is. I get how easy and well-conditioned we are to like, get someone else to, to sort this out. Someone else should should take responsibility for this. People of God say, "I'll do it." I don't know who put the trash there, but I'll clean it up. Yeah, for sure, someone needs to like step in. Maybe an authority. Maybe someone who can like put you in jail, or or you know, there's all of that. But what if, like Nehemiah, we said, "You know what? I'm going to do something." I'm the cupbearer. I get FaceTime with the emperor. What if I was to take responsibility for this? What if I was to confess my own sins and risk my job/slash my life? We'll get into that next week. And he says, God, grant me mercy as I go to stand before this man. He risks everything as he faces down the pain of his unmet expectations. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Father, would you help us to... Apply the example given to us in this particular book, this man. Lord Jesus, thank you that uh, you're not asking us to do anything that you haven't done yourself. It says in John 11 that he wept, then he immediately prayed, and then made a beeline for the cross that's our God mourning, praying, and taking responsibility for the sins of the world. Lord Jesus, would you help us to trust you, to obey you, and to become like you in that way? Would you give us courage? Would you give us patience? Would you give us grace towards one another? Would you help us to be the kind of family that says, this is a safe place to mourn? Say whatever you need to say, sit in your pain, I'll sit with you. Would you help us to be good listeners? Father, would you empower us to take responsibility where we might be tempted to shift the blame or to even hide and cover up. Lord, would you help us to come to you, trusting that it is your good will to utilize the influence of, And the opportunities given to us for change. that We might not simply live in the wake of disappointment, but we would overcome and begin to rebuild and invite you into the places that were once ashes. We might experience more of your beauty, more of your joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship.